Well, I take you just for a moment to that last portion of God's Word there in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. And just reading a few verses and then coming to our subject this afternoon. Peter is writing to early believers here in this first epistle general, 1 Peter. And he says in verse 24, quoting there from that passage that we read in Isaiah 40, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We have here set before us dying men. We say, read here in verse 24, for all flesh is as grass. This is the grass is, we read how it withers, just like the flower thereof, and it falls away. So we have dying men, all flesh. Remember those words there in Genesis chapter 9. We read of all flesh. God made all flesh, and he would destroy all flesh. Well, it is as grass. It's here for a short period of time. In that Psalm 90, we're reminded that man is as grass that groweth up in the morning, and in the evening it is hewn down. And then in direct contrast to that, the Word, the living Word, the Word which lives on forever. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. So the living Word and the eternal Word. But I must remind you that man, while he is flesh, he is also spirit. God made Adam, he made him, and then he breathed, as it were, into his nostrils, and he became a living soul. And everyone that is born is a soul. We have a body, and while the body is here for a while, we have a soul that lives on forever. And it's by the living word that men are born, by the word which comes by the Spirit, and by the word and the Spirit that a man, he says, is born again. Look at verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, that which is the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now our subject this afternoon is the providence of God. God has promised to preserve not only his word, but his people. And I suppose we could speak about the providence in providence of God in many ways, couldn't we? Such a, a vast subject. We've been going through the attributes of God. We come now to the attribute of God's providence. And one of the ways in which we can see God's providence is how he has providentially kept his word. We will look, not just how he has kept his word, but how we see his providence in many ways in the scripture. And maybe 
In many ways that we can see it in our world and society today. We can see God's providence. Things being outworked. This is the theme this afternoon. What is really the providence of God? Well, in the Reformation confessions, such as the Westminster Confession, the 1647 Confession, and also the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession, it stated very clearly what the providence of God is in those confessions. And I quote from the preface, and there are, of course, when we come to God's preservation of the word, we're told there what it is. But here in the preface, the Old Testaments concerning the preservation of Scripture in Hebrew, we read which is the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of writing it was the most generally known to the nations. And we read being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence. There's the word, and there's the subject. Kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. They are authentic. While we do not have the original autographs, God has providentially preserved his word for us. And we'll think about that this afternoon. But let us consider more generally what is God's providence. Well, again, the Westminster Confession, uh, the question 11 in the Catechism asks, what are the works of God's providence? And the answer given is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Think of that profound statement. God's governing and preserving of all his creatures. That includes the righteous or those who are made righteous, the saved and the unsaved, the just and the unjust. God governing and preserving every man, but also we could take it even further. It extends to all beasts of the field, all creatures, even that foal of an ass that was preserved to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into that city of Jerusalem was providentially preserved by himself who sustains all things and who governs all things and who works all things for the glory of his name. And so we could also extend that. We could also extend to that thought how he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. That's all details and the intricacies of the details in this life. God's providence, you see, is inseparably connected to his decreeing all things. When we speak about God's providence, it is simply the outworking of all the things that he has decreed from even before the foundation of the world. So that everything taking place in time, we could say, is providentially ordered because it has been decreed by Almighty God. They are God's purposes being outworked. So every event in the, this world, even this sinful world, 
is taking place by God's determination. Now, what I want to do for the first part is give you a number of proof texts for this and then seek to try to apply it in the areas of our life. So a number of proof texts with regards to God's providence. We read there, didn't we, from Isaiah 46. And uh, if you just turn there for a moment, it's a, a tremendous passage and that is given in context with the eunuchs that would be carried into Babylon many years ahead. And God knowing that he would send his people into Babylonia for some 70 years of captivity. And knowing even the foreign gods that many would trust in and bow down to. How even those gods would be carried away on animals, on oxen. But God is very different to those gods. Those are the, the gods that men manufacture with their hands. We read of those gods, how they're made by silver and gold, made out of silver and gold, made by foolish, unbelieving men. We read, Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. These are gods, one being one god who is the father of another god. Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Isaiah 46 verse 1, their idols were upon the beasts. So the, the beasts, the animals are carrying away these foolish idols. Isn't it madness, isn't it? When you look at men's idols, they have to have animals that carry them away. And here this is alluding to the time that the people would be led away, some into foreign lands, those who have worshipped them. But God has promised to preserve his people, just as he would preserve his word, even for 70 years in captivity. We have these words. And you notice there how those gods needed to be carried. But God says of his people, I will carry you. What a contrast. He carries them. Verse 4, and even to your old age, I am he. And even to Horhez will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So while men need to protect their idols, it is Almighty God that protects and preserves his people even for 70 years, and he will bring them out, even according to the words of Jeremiah. And we read even in Isaiah that God will raise up a servant, Cyrus, to issue a decree, and the people shall come out. Well, we have these texts, and you come down to verse 11. Let's read verse 8 there of Isaiah 46. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressor. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. You see, this is what we have. We have God decreeing everything. He declares it. He says what is going to take place. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel, that is his determined will, shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You see how he even calls a ravenous bird. As I said, when we consider the, the providence of God, it, it extends to all beasts, all creatures, all birds, all bees. Look at the mighty plagues in which he took the Israelites out of Egypt. God had control over the Nile River, 
over the flies, over the locusts, over the lice, over everything. And we read here, verse 11, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. God says, I will do it because I have determined it. And what we have really, what is taking place in all of history is God's providence being worked out. Now, there are a number of scripture references. One of them we could take is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. If you notice, here speaking of the Lord Jesus after he suffered upon the cross for the sins of his people. He who is very God and came into this world in human form and took to himself our nature. And it says, though that be the case, and though his glory was veiled for a little while, who being in the brightness, verse 3, of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding, notice, all things by the word of his power, even when he came to this world, he did not cease to be God still upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, that the sins of his people sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he is now. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Christ has accomplished his work here as the Redeemer. And he is now sat on the right hand of the majesty of the Father as a high priest, having interceded for his people in terms of laying down his life for them. But he now intercedes as a high priest, praying for them. His work is done. His sacrifice is complete. Their sins, as we read, were purged on the cross at Calvary. And he upholds all things. He continues to do. He did before. How? By the word of his power. Everything was kept before by the word of Jesus Christ. And everything even now is kept by his word. And so what we have here is the providence of God. And think of what the Lord Jesus said when he spoke to the disciples. Remember on that most wonderful occasion where he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Matthew ten twenty nine. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. While he was here on earth, he was saying, all things are kept by almighty God. The father, he said, but the father is in me and I in the father and we are one. Not even a sparrow shall fall to the ground. And not one of them shall fall. Not even a hair of your head shall fall except to be your Father's will. So everything is providentially arranged by God. Our health, our wealth, our time, everything is in God's hands. Every sparrow that lives, every bird, every bee, every creature has its day determined by Almighty God. And there's nothing unknown to Him. Every little animal that dies is known by Almighty God. Every butterfly, every insect. And that is so much, isn't it, for us to fathom. We cannot even begin to comprehend that. My, the billions 
of creatures and insects there are. There are well over 10,000 species of birds. And you think of all the birds, the fishes of the sea, billions and billions, and everyone is known by Almighty God. Well, the Lord Jesus made this astonishing claim of God's sovereignty, which extends to every animal, every beast of the field, every bird of the air. And then we have at that time, remember when Nebuchadnezzar, where he said to Daniel and his companions, those eunuchs, and how they would not bow down to his image and worship, God humbled him. He made him to live as a beast, as it were, for seven years. God humbled him. God brought him. Think of it, even him, he, he grew feathers, and like claws, lived as a beast. And then God brought him back to his senses. And we read, don't we, in Daniel 4.34. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was actually quoting some scripture there as well. He says of God, his dominion, that's God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or stop his hand and say unto him, what doest thou? Nobody can question God because he just does what he is determined to do. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He allowed that man to be elevated in his pride and then he humbled him. God did the same with Pharaoh. He's done the same with so many. Look at some of the kings in the Old Testament, how they tried to go against what God had said. Remember King Uzzah when he touched the ark? Remember those who did terrible things, and there was Uzzah who was supporting the ark, and he was struck down. Great kings have tried to go against God's word. God has humbled them. And then we have in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have these tremendous words. Verse 6, Thou even thou, O Lord, alone, thou hast made heaven and the heaven of heavens, with all their host and the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. What you have there is the providence of God. God has determined to providentially keep this world. Remember the words to Noah, so long as the earth remains, the season shall continue, summer, springtime, and harvest shall remain. And God has promised not to flood this world with a deluge, with a flood, as he did, to destroy it with a flood again. But he has said that he will destroy it with a great fire, with a great conflagration when Jesus Christ comes. This present earth shall burn up with a fervent heat, and so on. That's how the world will end. Not with any other disaster, not with global warming or anything else, not with a nuclear bomb, but with the coming of the Son of God, the Son of Man, in great glory, and every eye will see Him. 
God is determined of all things. He is providentially ordering and keeping everything, determining the things that have happened and will happen. Even we could take it to the death of the Lord Jesus there in Acts chapter 4. Remember when the disciples, after having preached, and they're told by the Jewish authorities to stop preaching, and they began to pray and to praise God. They looked to a God who had determined by his foreknowledge and counsel and will that his son should be put to death by the hands of wicked men so that when they prayed, they prayed these words. Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth stood up and the elders were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of the Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So whatever they did was already determined by God. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Pilate, thou wouldst have no power except it be given thee. And these are solemn truths. As Christians, we must, if we are a believer, we must not shy away from these things. We're never to be embarrassed of a God that has determined everything. Although he is not the author of sin, God can never be charged with the author of sin. These things simply teach us that God is in control. Although he has decreed sin, he is not the author of it. God doesn't put the sinful disposition in man's heart. For there to be darkness, for there to be evil, there simply needs to be goodness. And everything that is opposed to God is darkness, his light, his purity. And therefore, anything that is contrary to him is darkness, is light. He that is not with me is against me. And so on. Now, men use the word chance or fate in this life as if there were no God or as if he were not in control. He's in control of everything, not some things. We don't speak of God in being more control of something. He's either in control or he's not at all. His providence is not arbitrary to some things. But it's over all things. He is over all things. Think of it, even things of what men call facts. God is in control of all things, even the facts. Facts do not exist, as it were, in and of themselves. Facts are because God has foreordained everything. And uh, even random events that even happen are a foreordained of God. Even the random things, things that you might think are random, and that has nothing to do with that. That's still determined by God. Nothing exists but by the decree of God. We have to be settled on this. In uh, 1 John, so, sorry, John chapter 1, verse 3, we are told, when we're told, and John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we're told in the verse 3, all things were made by him, that is, who is the Word, 
and the Word who became flesh, which is Jesus Christ. And we're told, and without him was not anything made that was made. So not only is he the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. We read in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, Colossians 1.17, and by him all things consist. They consist, they are. He says if something is going to cease to exist or to come into being, everything is determined by him. And that's the truth. It's the simple truth. He has decreed it. He has ordained all events, all facts, all events of history. And that includes all the complexities that surround and incorporate every detail of facts. Every detail of it. Exactly how something would look, how it would behave, and so on. Now again, that does not make God the author of sin. What he simply does is he removes his common restraints. If evil is to increase in a place, God says, am I not responsible for it? Yes, how? He removes his goodness. He removes his light. He removes his influence. You see, man is not as bad as he could be. God just has to remove some of his influence of good for man to be what he is. But God did warn man, didn't he? In the garden, Adam, the day that thou sinnest, thou shalt surely die. But that was not just a merely physical death that he would experience, but a spiritual death. Loss of communion with God. Loss of influence. And the terrible corruption of sin. And sin has spread to all men. When you, when you think about sin and how even sin has spread to us, that was determined by Almighty God. There was one representative. His name was Adam. The head of the human race. We're told by one man, sin entered. And sin has spread to all men. How? By one man. God determined that. You say, well, that's not fair. I didn't get a choice in it. But you get a choice now how you live, don't you, in the decisions you make. It doesn't matter. People have a great argument with God when it speaks to imputed sin. You are imputed with Adam's sin as I am. But many people don't have a problem when it comes to imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to his people or imputed sin to Christ. They don't have a problem with that, that he his people's sins would be imputed to him. But that, again, is God's mercy. And people are born, shaven in iniquity. In my mother's womb, I was a sinner. Because I came from sinful parents. And I loved sin. I was not only shaven in it, but I was a delighter in it. And that of my own volition, choice, and will. God did not make me a robot. He made me an intelligible being. He made me a moral being, knowing right from wrong. So we don't argue with God. We know we sin willfully. 
We know we come from sinful parents. But here's the amazing thing, that God, even in his providence, worked salvation by the wickedness of men. This is amazing. You know, if we, if we complain about the wickedness of men, and, and in a sense, God even used the wickedness of men to bring about the salvation of his people. When we read in Acts 4.26, we read it there, didn't we? How the kings of the earth stood up, read it, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Why? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be before done. So there we have the providence of God. And even Judas was named in Scripture, wasn't he? As the very one who would betray the Lord Jesus. And yet we read, while it was foreordained, while it was providentially determined and decreed, we read in Acts 20, don't we, that by transgression Judas fell. By the transgression of his own heart, he loved money. By nature, we're no different to Judas. None of us. Judas was a vessel foreordained from all eternity to be a vessel of God's wrath and God's judgment. And that's true with even regards to the fallen angels. When we think of the fallen angels, they were, they were created individually, as it were. God knew them, and God, just as he knows every human person, they are created individually. We're not looking the same. We're differently made, uniquely made, unique characters, yet fallen, though, in Adam. There were the angels that he made, and there were the Fallen angels that were, we read them in 1 Timothy 5.21. The scriptures speak of the elect angels, however. The fallen angels, they were chosen to destruction. They were foreordained to that. And even, I suppose, the non-elect angels, they were foreordained and even kept by the power of God in a state of innocence. And even us, if we're Christians, we're told we're kept by the power of God through faith, and even faith is a gift, so that we are providentially preserved. This is amazing. We could even say even a sinless creature, such as an angel, is completely dependent upon God to remain in that sinless state. That, that is amazing, isn't it? It makes every creature humble before God. Left to ourselves, you see. We're darkness. Because only God is light. Only God is pure, true. Now again, if you look at 1 Peter 2, 7, those who believe and those who are the Lord's who are granted repentance and faith... Peter says, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, 1 Peter 2, 7, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone, and he is speaking about disobedient men in this world, which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling. That is, they stumble at Christ 
and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, now notice, whereunto also they were appointed, providentially appointed by God. Again, as I said, the fall of man was by one man. Adam was a representative of the human race. And as in all in Adam, we're told, die. Even so many, all that are in Christ shall live and have eternal life. A man does what he wants to do. He is a creature made in the image of God. And yet, sadly, he even hates that image because of sin. Man is by nature a hater of God. This is how bad the world is. You think, why do people take God's name in vain? It is because we're told they are children of wrath. It's, it's a serious thing, isn't it? Don't ever expect God's favor, my friend. If you treat God's name in vain, and that doesn't just mean use his name as an invective, but that is to treat his word lightly and to even say that you're a Christian and live casually. This is why Peter says, let us pass the time if we're Christians here with fear. Because this very one who is God became human flesh and shed his precious blood for his people. That's why, you know, you don't. Even take the name of Christ in vain. That doesn't just mean use Christ's name as a swear word. But you don't live carelessly. You're thankful. He's precious to them that believe. Well, these people who are the Lord's, they never merited anything to earn God's favor, to earn his salvation. But God providentially worked out that Christ would die for many and that he would regenerate them and that he would give them repentance toward God and faith. That is what God did and does in the life of a person. Isn't that amazing? And therefore, think of the many who never enter into a church and who never hear the word of God. And yet to you, such privilege is afforded to hear God's word. That's why it's a solemn thing to hear the word of God and to have no effect upon you. Though it is God that does a work in the soul, man, yet there is the greater sin. Think of the cities which the Lord Jesus Christ preached in there in Matthew 11, where the word of God was done and the miracles were done. He said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. And it's same. It doesn't, it's the same for people today. They've heard the word. More privilege is given. Yet there's accountability, isn't there? Now, God, again, is not the author of sin. But God does restrain sin in this world. Or he does not restrain. Providentially. He restrains or he does not restrain. He's not the author of sin. Now I want you to notice Psalm 76, verse 10. Even the wrath of man that God doesn't restrain, we're told, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. And the remainder of wrath 
shalt thou restrain. That's God's providence in restraining wrath. So there is the wrath that he allows. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. What God allows men to do providentially. And then the remainder of wrath, whatever he doesn't restrain, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. There's some wrath that he restrains. Thank the Lord for it. The world's not as bad as it could be. It is bad. Don't get me wrong. But you know, it could be a lot worse. And hell, hell will be a terrible place. Not only will there be God's anger against sin, but it will be an awful place where there is no grace where there is no preservation, where there is no church, where there are no believers, but impenitent souls. So God is working and has worked providentially in this. Think of it, the providence of God. Let me just take you back to the Old Testament. Do you remember Joseph and his brothers, how they sold him into Egypt, into slavery? The Midianite men came and he was sold into slavery and taken away and when he met his brothers again, what did he say? Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But we read, God meant it unto good. In other words, God determined it. Joseph could see that God was behind this whole affair. And he was telling his brothers, well, you meant it for evil. Because they were jealous, they were envious of it. They couldn't stand his father's love for Joseph. But God meant it for good. Why? To bring it to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. And you could even broaden this to the time that God would bring over two million people out of Egypt one day and bring them out into Canaan. Why? For his glory. And finally, to bring the Savior into the world through one of... Jacob's son's family, Judah, so that he would be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now something else, David even saw this. Remember David, there was a man by the name of Shimei, Shimei, who was cursing David at once, throwing dust up in the air and calling him all names. And David's son had turned against him. So in 2 Samuel 16, we read, verse 11, And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and let him curse. Now notice, for the Lord hath bidden him in other words, the Lord has allowed it. The Lord's, it may, it may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. You see, David could see that God was even allowing this and God is going to bring out about the destruction of this man by what he's saying. And you see, because God is providentially a, ordered everything and even 
people, if we're Christians and people are against us, we have to say, God is going to work all things together for good to them that love me. Even the man that curses me. My God sees everything. In fact, my God has ordered everything. And the wicked that is perpetrated against his name or even me, we can say with David perhaps, it may be the Lord will look upon mine affliction, that the Lord will requite me good for this cursing. You see, David saw it. David believed in the providence of God. And I suppose when you look at all the prophecies in Scripture, are they not providentially worked out? You think of wicked king Ahab. Remember how he was told not to go into battle, and yet he he continued to, to do his own thing, and he was warned. Yes, he was a wicked king, but God knew that he was going to go into battle, and God knew exactly how he was going to die. And that the dogs would lick up his blood and they would wash his armor. So we read in Second Chronicles 18, and the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab, king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one spake, saying after this manner, another sang after that manner. And then we read this, Then they came out of spirit and stood before the Lord. Now notice, and said, I will entice him. Now, by the way, this is an evil spirit. And the evil spirits God will allow to do his work. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now, we're told in Scripture that God cannot lie. And neither are any of his angels or any of his people that are now the spirits of just men make perfect, are they lying spirits? God cannot lie, neither do his people lie. But here God, it's showing, has power even over the evil spirits. Think of how even the Lord Jesus sent those 2,000 swine into the lake, into the sea, with the evil spirits. And so here, this lying spirit, Goes forth, and the Lord said, Thou shalt entice him, and thou shalt also prevail. Go out, do even so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of these thy lying prophets. Well, the lying prophets wanted to lie, and they weren't of the Spirit of the Lord. You see, God is providentially over all things, even the evil. And the Lord hath spoken evil against thee, we read. And then you notice how Ahab, even later on, dies. How we read, how it says that the word of the Lord was fulfilled as his blood was licked up. There's also, if you look in 1 Kings 22, a certain man drew a bow at a venture, smote the king. 1 Kings 22, 34. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, or the word could be used at a chance, or so-called. The, the language is brought to, uh, so that we can understand. There's no such thing as a chance, but a man just drew a bow, and it was shot randomly and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver, 
of his chariot, turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians and died at even, and the blood ran out of the wound in the midst of the chariot. And there went a proclamation throughout the host about going down the sun, saying, Every man to his city, and every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. Verse 37. And they buried the king in Samaria, and one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor. And notice, according unto the word of the Lord, which he spake. So that's how Ahab died. There earlier we read of Ahab in Second Chronicles, the king of Israel, how he rebelled against God, but the Lord, his word was filled, fulfilled in the end, wasn't it? A bow even at an adventure. Think of it. The humility that day, the strength of the man, God determined the strength of that man that would pull that bow just so that it would go just in the right place and enter into Ahab and slay him to the ground. And even the dogs, God determined, those very dogs would be there, would lick up his blood, they would wash his armor. So that every detail, my friend, this is a solemn thing, isn't it, of God's word. The providence of God, you see, is it's, it's a frightening thing. Especially if we find ourselves here this afternoon. And God has determined everything. And we find ourselves as Stephen said to those who were just about to pick up stones and put him to death and who hated the messenger. He said, ye always resist the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, what he meant is man cannot resist the irresistible drawing of the Spirit, but the Word. The Spirit gives the Word. Stephen was speaking about the Word of God. And for people to sit under God's Word and to resist it, it's a fearful thing, my friend, to fall into the hands of such the living God. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? We read of Judas. Many people feel sorry for Judas, but we read in Judas, in, in Acts 1.25, Judas, who by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Did you love darkness? You do not love the light, which is Jesus Christ. You will go into outer darkness. And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's a solemn thing. Remember Felix. Remember others who said, come back when there's a more convenient time. But no such time comes. Well, God has his decreed will, but he also has his perceptive will, doesn't he? When we think of his providence, when we think how he's determined everything, his perceptive will is what he commands men to do. His decreed will is always fulfilled, but his perceptive will, what he commands, is not always carried out by men. That's why we read in Matthew 12. Remember, 
When many came to him, he just cast out a demon out of a man. And then many said, come, here's your mother. And he says in Matthew 12, 48, but answered and said unto them, I told him, who is my mother? Who are my brethren? And he said, these are them. Whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven. This the same as my brother, sister, and mother. So it's the, what he has commanded to do. But men don't always do what he commands. But yet men do what he has decreed. <laughs> Solemn, isn't it? So let us just think now when we come to God's sovereignty and in terms of his providence. As we said earlier, God is not more in control of some things as he is other things. He has preserved everything in this world. And everything is being kept and decreed by him as dark as the world might see. We, have to, we sang there, didn't we, from Psalm 93. The Lord reigneth. He's on his throne. He has determined all things. And God has determined and providentially, we read, didn't we, preserved his word. In what ways does God preserve? First of all, he preserves his word and he preserves his people. I want to close with those two areas of God's providence this afternoon and apply them. Firstly, his word. If you turn to Psalm 12, We read, didn't we, there from 1 Peter 1, where Peter said, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Peter was speaking about the fact that God had determined that his word would stand forever. Also, Peter there was quoting, wasn't he, from Isaiah 40. But here in Psalm 12, many people have debated, I need to say this, is the psalmist, is the spirit here, of God who gave the words to the psalmist speaking of the word or is he speaking of the people of the word? And I suggest to you it's, it's both. But primarily he's here speaking about the people who shall be preserved if you leave, read the context. But then if you look at verse 6, we could say that God keeps both word and his people. Psalm 12 verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now notice, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now it's interesting, if you read the context, it seems to be, as he's speaking about the Lord's people. But this could be true in terms of the word as well. God is preserving the word and the people. And we know that Peter writes, doesn't he, he says in 1 Peter 1.5 that his people are kept by the power of God through faith and it's not a nebulous faith, it's faith in the word. And we're told faith cometh by hearing and hearing what? The word of God. So God has providentially preserved his word and it's by the word that his people are kept. The psalmist says, does he not, that he is kept by word is a lamp to my feet. It keeps us and it points us to the one who is the word. 
So we have these things. Look at Psalm 100, verse 5. That speaks about the preservation of God's word. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth, really which is his word, endureth to all generations. God has, as we said and we quoted there from the confession, providentially preserved his word to all generations. Every successive generation. Now the common view, and I need to plug this in with God's providence, is that some people believe that all so-called manuscripts, the so-called Gospels, there's now, I don't know if you've heard of it, called the, the Gospel of Thomas, which was written somewhere 200 AD or so, well after that, but it's ridiculous. And some of the things that are said, and there are, some of the modern scholars are saying, well, we should consider that. Well, if you read the heresies in that, if God hasn't preserved his word through all generations, we could then introduce something else like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or something like that. But God has promised to keep his word to all generations. That's why we completely reject all these modern translations that are based on corrupt Alexandrian manuscripts. For instance, the Westcott and Hort manuscripts, the Alexandrian texts. It was a haven for heresy. And we have to reject those, God has said that he will preserve his word from this generation forever. God who has preserved everything. And do we really believe that he would leave his church bereft for some 1,700 years since Christ to people finding some manuscripts found in the Vatican and so on? And what if somebody else digs up something else in this age and nothing is new under the sun? God has kept his word. So that you can see why the providence of God is so important, particularly when it comes to the scriptures. Because what if somebody does bring something up? If God has promised to give it to every church age. We have to believe this doctrine has been true, and God cannot lie. But corrupt Bible translations, my friends, are abounding. And I wish to warn the young people here of this. Please do not use these things. And uh, we have people that have come from foreign countries in this church, and they would be highly insulted if you said to them they can't understand Old English, it would be an insult, wouldn't it? You understand it. You can learn these things. We believe in word for word. The problem with the modern translations is it's thought for thought. But it's word for word. If it's thought for thought, thought, for thought it's man's interpretation on a thought. But word for word is what God has promised for us, hasn't he? My word, not my thoughts, but my word shall be kept to all generations. So, so important. Something else, and I think 
It needs to be sent. If you are a Christian, and if you're born again, you know, a lot of young people have these mobile phones today. And uh, I know it's, uh, it's nothing wrong with having the Bible on your phone. But in church, let me suggest it's not a good idea. And let me say why. Would you really want to give the impression to some unbeliever that you're browsing the internet during the service? You know, the scriptures say we should avoid all appearance of evil. That's why when we come to the services, we should put our phones on silent, and we should have a Bible. We should avoid all appearance of evil. Now, I'm all for using digital communications and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with having one on your mobile, but I think it's a good practice, don't you, to avoid that appearance of checking your emails and checking WhatsApp and checking whatever other uh, means of communication you have. You don't want to give the impression that you're making light of the gatherings. So that's very important. The Lord has preserved his word. How precious, the psalmist says, it's precious to me. And I would ask you, is it precious to you? Every word is truth. We read there, didn't we, from Psalm 12. It's truth. And let me say this, if, and you read there, as I read, it's hard to tell whether the psalmist or the spirit is speaking about the word and, or the people that should be preserved. But it's really both. Many would argue that it's the people that are preserved. Thou shalt preserve them. And we do believe in the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. But how are they kept? By the power of God through faith. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. And never use that text, my friend. Faith is a gift of God. And it doesn't just come simply by the preaching of the word, but it comes by the Spirit of God, who firstly regenerates a soul and brings them to repentance and faith. Unless you have repentance, let me say, you don't really have faith. Where there is a true sorrowful heart and there's a turning of life, there's life. There's a new life. And the new life begins to read God's word and to study God's word and to devour it. Do you ever hunger for God's word? Well, if you do, let me say this, you will be preserved by it. God who has providentially given you the word. You know that parable which our Lord Jesus Christ gives of the talents? One five, one two, one one. And the one that were the one, he goes and buries it. He never really had faith. He said, I knew you to be a hard taskmaster. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't love the Lord. He wasn't thankful for what he had. He didn't put it to work. But the one that has, the Lord Jesus said to him, more shall be given to him. And if you have been given faith in the word, Use it. God has given it to you. He's providentially preserved it for you. But you see, his people are providentially preserved by the word. You see it there in Psalm 12. They kept by this word. David even says, by thy word. And it's by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. 
And so I would warn you. Let me just close with a, a few things. You've heard of Thomas Jefferson, sadly. A leader of a great nation. But that man did not believe in the entirety of the Scriptures to be the infallible word of Almighty God. And uh, what he did is he made up his own Bible, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And very sadly, well, he, he said it didn't take me long. What he did is he, he took some scissors and a penknife and he cut out sections that he didn't like. And we have the Thomas Jefferson Bible today and it was given to Barack Obama during his time and he received it gladly. My friends, God has his word and none of it is to be cut out. None of it is to be left out. Because remember, as I said, God knows every single little creature in this world and every jot Every tittle of the word of God shall be fulfilled. And every part has a meaning and a purpose. And it is for us to discover it and to enjoy Jesus Christ, who is the word. Some things we may find very difficult to understand and some things are. Don't pretend that or don't think that it's untrue because you don't understand it. What you have with a lot of these new translations today, sadly, and even the New King James is guilty of this, is it'll say in the more modern manuscripts, or the more the, the older manuscripts, they say, so-called, this is not found here. New King James is guilty of that too. But we need to be very careful. All of God's word is precious, and it is for us. And we will be preserved by it. Let us make sure we hold on to God's word. Let us make sure we know who the, the one who is called the word. That's the most important thing. That you see the one who is in the word. Jesus Christ, do you know him? We're told the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. That's the whole point of the Bible. Man is lost, he's fallen, he's without hope, and the only hope is the one who is the Word. And the one who is the Word suffered and died for his people. But although they were lost in Adam, they will have eternal life in him. And God is true to his Son. He promised to give him a people a people who will hunger and thirst after him and after righteousness. The stone which the builders rejected. They had the word, the Pharisees, you know. But they neglected to see him. Do you neglect to see Jesus Christ? Don't read the word of God selectively. Read it wholly. God, if he were, let me say this, if he was not providentially and if he did not arrange everything and determine everything, he would cease to be God. Every part of God's word is precious. And we have to see Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's word.
for righteousness to his people. Amen.